1 Peter 5, 5 says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed in humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is an incredible virtue that runs counter to the culture that we live in. And nowhere in society is is humility really claimed as being a means in which you can rise to the top. In fact, it's the opposite of that usually. In the business world, humility will get you walked on. Feigned humility is sometimes honored, but only externally. And genuine humility is found only in service. And this is why the king of creation took a bowl of water, wrapped himself in an apron, and washed the filthy feet of dirty sinners. True humility is observed when we quietly go about the business of debasement for the benefit of those around us, seeking no recognition or approval except for the glory of God. We're going to talk today, obviously, about showing humility with one another, and yet there's not necessarily direct be humble one to another passages. There are several one another passages that are hinting at how we submit to one another, how we behave towards one another, but they don't necessarily use the word humility, although I just read for you 1 Peter 5, 5 that tells us that we are to, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so we're going to look at these uh, ideas that are presented, not necessarily the word be humble one toward another, but the idea of humility that's presented and even in behind some of the Greek words of how we are to one another. And so we're going to first go to Galatians chapter 5, if you'd like to turn there. And uh, we're going to answer or kind of walk through three different questions here or three different points. The first is just that why we need humility in the church. I already stated, in a sense, the reason is that Christ humbled himself and became a servant, and we are to emulate that and wear better. Or it, let me, let me put it this way the easiest place in all the world for you to demonstrate humility should be here when we assemble with one another. It should be the absolute easiest place to do it. Now we know at times it's very difficult. And so we'll start by answering why we need humility in the church. We'll look at these three different passages, Galatians, Ephesians, and then 1 Peter And so Galatians chapter 5, if you would start in verse 13 with me, we'll read verse 13 to verse 15. The Bible says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. So we have a couple one another statements here to, that we're to love one another, to serve one another, and not to, uh, to consume one another. And so we have, first off, that humility makes my liberty that I have in Christ 
It makes it valuable. We have freedom in Christ. And this passage is alluding to that. In fact, it's in this, this uh, right before the context of verse 16, which tells us to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And then it tells us what the fruit of the Spirit, or those who walk in the Spirit, how they evidence that in their life. And so it's all on this, the built, building up to this point of how we behave like Christ, both inside and outside the church. And so humility helps me to place other people ahead of myself. Now we know that. That's a very basic statement of humility, that we're to place other people ahead of ourselves. And yet we know that's difficult all through the Scripture, right? It's, it's commanded that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, and the second great commandment is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And, and when the, the lawyer asks Jesus to try and trip him up, Jesus gives him the very obvious answer from all of the Old Testament that we love the Lord our God with all our heart and we love our neighbor as ourselves. And they act as if they, they thought they were going to get him with that one. And yet it's, it's prevalent all through Scripture that we're to love other people. And yet in the New Testament, he opens up this whole new aspect that the Pharisees, it's counter the Pharisees, that we have liberty or freedom in Christ as we interact with the world around us, we have freedom in order to, to advance the cause of Christ. Nowhere in Scripture is your liberty about you. Your liberty is all about other people. How you can serve and minister for Christ in the lives of other people. And so it places love ahead of personal gain. And Paul, of course, exhorts this over and over again. And he's been exhorting this to the readers in this context of love one another. And if we're going to love one another, we have to be humble. You can't love, let's be honest, the most natural love that you have is your love for yourself. And so it takes a supernatural act of God created in you, birthed in you, and growing in you to love other people more than you love yourself. It's just not natural. It comes from Christ. And humility is a key to it. And so Paul's been exhorting the readers to love one another. And if the readers revert back to their old self, revert back to pride, then they will naturally provoke one another and envy one another, which he's already told them not to do. The return to being backbiters and lovers of themselves, which is contrary to the Spirit of God. And that's what he gets into in the next passage. Verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then he gives us the, the acts or the works of the flesh. Verse 19, he starts to list those. Adultery. Look at how many of these not have indirect links to pride, but direct links to pride. The love of oneself, which is, is pride. He lists them. Adultery, that's certainly the love of oneself. Fornication, that's certainly the love of oneself. Uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, that's the love of the things that we want to worship more than we want to worship God. That's in pride. Sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. All, many of these are directly linked to pride. Not a roundabout link, direct 
from pride, right? Selfish ambitions, you're going to tell me that's not pride? Oh, that's pride. That's pride in the very clearest form. We love ourselves. And our flesh will naturally love itself. We don't have to teach our flesh to love itself. It does it naturally. And yet it's contrary to the works of the Spirit. And then he goes into the fruit of the Spirit. And so Paul here is placing love ahead of personal gain. And love requires humility. When we respond with humility, it gives my convictions purpose. And here's what I think is linked with liberty. My convictions help me stand for what is right, for what is true, and to show love to others above love of my own flesh. And so if I compromise my convictions for myself, then I'm in danger of being a hypocrite and loving myself more than other people. If I, if I lord my convictions over other people, then I'm in danger of being a Pharisee, which is pride, because I think I know better and I behave better. I am better than other people. That's Phariseeism. That's pride. But if I hold to my convictions while serving other people in liberty, well, that's humility. And then my love is evident, and my God is evident. If I use my liberty to serve and, and reveal the love of Jesus Christ to those around me, it means I, I'm not saying I participate in sin. Christ tells us not to participate in sin, but I associate with sinners. You realize you have the freedom in Christ to associate with sinners? Dare I say you have the command of Christ to associate with sinners? And this ran so counter to the religion of the world. It, it ran counter to Pharisaicalism, which said you must separate, be totally separate, do, do not even associate with sinners in any way. And yet we find Jesus meeting with harlots with, with publicans, with sinners, to the point where the Pharisees accuse him of being a wine-bibber or somebody who sits there and, and, and drinks and drinks all day long in order to get drunk. No, but Jesus sat at table with those people. Why? That he might minister grace to them. He had freedom. Now, of course, he had freedom because he's the Son of God. But you have freedom because you're under the power of God. You have freedom to associate, the command to associate with the people of this world that you might minister grace to them, grace for the cause of Christ. In humility, I can serve the unsaved without worrying about what others will think. And we should care more about what a sinner thinks of the Savior than what a fellow saint thinks about my own sanctification. Now, I'm not saying we dabble in sin. Don't dabble in sin. Live a life that is so holy, so above reproach, that when other people see you interacting with sinners, they know that you're not participating in sin, but you are there to influence them for the cause of Christ. And so I ask you, do you care more about what a, a sinner thinks of the Savior than you do what another church member might think of you? We should care what people think about our Lord more than what we, we think people might think about us. And humility helps us to do that. 
Humility also reveals my deep reverence for God. Would you go to Ephesians, just the next book, Ephesians 5. We have a very short one another command here. And the command is, is given for us to show reverence to the Lord by being humble with one another. Ephesians 5, verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. A very quick command. It again shows my love for God through my love for other people, right? The, the basis here is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a, a dreadful reverence of God that brings an inevitable, uh, overwhelming love and delight in who God is. That I'm so, I marvel at the grandness of God, the majesty of God, the glory of God, the greatness of God, that in awe I must serve a being, the being who is so wonderful. That's what compels me. I must serve God, for God alone is great. And in doing that, in fearing God, in reverencing God that way, I show love to other people. I submit to one another. That's the word here, submission. It, it requires me placing myself in this position. Submission means to make oneself subordinate or below, to make oneself below another. And a servant will often ask his master, how can I be of service? A good servant finds, can find pleasure in serving, not begrudging, but even cheerfully serving and bringing pleasure to the master. First to God, to His methods, to His will, to His plan, and then to others. And if I'm putting God first, let me put it in the negative, if I'm not putting God first, I can't put others ahead of myself. God must be first. And if God's first, then it becomes easy to place others ahead of myself because that's exactly what God both calls and enables me to do. And this is evident of being spirit-filled, in fact. This passage is, is also familiar. If you go back just a couple verses from verse uh, 21, you arrive at verse 18. The Bible says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting oneself or submitting to one another in the fear of God. And so verse 18 is a wonderful verse about control. It's really asking one question. Who or what controls you? Now the obvious answer, the, uh, the obvious uh, illustration given here is not to be drunk with, with wine so that the wine controls you. The wine, wine should never, alcohol should never control you. God should control you. But let me substitute many other things that could easily fit into that verse. Drugs. Drugs should never control you. We would all nod and say, of course, we all agree with that. Drugs should never control us. The Holy Spirit should control us. Let me move on. Lust. Lust should never control you. Money should never control you. Food should never control you. The Holy Spirit should be in control. And if you walk in the Spirit, that's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to be in control. And you'll find it easy, even enjoyable, to submit to one another 
in the fear of God. Now listen, Paul knows what he's doing. Under inspiration here, he's writing, and he's about to embark on a whole bunch of relationships. In verse 22, he mentions wives. In verse 25, he mentions husbands. In, in chapter 6, verse 1, he mentions children. 6, verse, verse 5, he mentions slaves and masters. He, he lists all these different relationships in which you and I are to submit to one another. To show deference and care and the love of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, does it take humility for a wife to submit to her husband? Absolutely. Does it take uh, humility for a husband to submit to his wife? Absolutely. And there's times and that should, should happen. Does it take humility for children to submit to their parents? Yes. Does it take humility for a, a, a slave or a servant or an employee to submit to their master? Yes. It requires humility. Any relationship requires humility. And yet it's an evidence of being spirit-filled. Paul understood this when he said, for the, great, for, the, for the sake of the gospel, he would become all things to all men. Humble himself. It wasn't below Paul to humble himself before a jailer. Even when he's imprisoned, Needlessly, falsely. It wasn't below him to humble himself, himself before sailors and other slaves. He did it many times. Paul, this great Pharisee of the Pharisees, this member of the elite class, the most, one of the most educated people of his time, and yet he humbled himself before everyone. Because humility calls us to do that. Submission is to people who are below us. I'm going to say something. I'm not trying to be provocative in any way here, but there, there's just, in reality, there's people below us and there's people above us. And we, we love, and by the way, Satan loves when we classify and break ourselves up into little groups. But there's all kinds of classifications in this world. And so I want you to ask yourself, can you submit to people who are below you? And there are people below you. And there's people above you, humanly speaking. Economically, there are people below you. I know that to be certain of our congregation. We live in a very affluent part of, of America. There's people in America economically below us. There, most of the world, probably 99% of the world outside of America is below us. Economically. Would you be willing to submit yourself to somebody who is not as economically prosperous as you? What about intellectual? Would you be able to submit yourself to somebody who's not as smart as you? And you know it? What about doctrinally? Could you submit yourself to somebody who, whose doctrine is not as good as yours? Now, I'll go back to my statement about liberty earlier. Liberty does not mean that we give in to sin. It means we stand firm in our conviction, but we do it with humility for the cause of Christ. So can you show love and humility to somebody who does not believe the correct things about Scripture when you're convinced fully, and I mean even biblically in your mind, that you know what is right, but they don't? Can you still submit? I'm not saying you submit to their doctrine. I'm saying you submit to them. And in deference, you serve them. Not deference to their doctrine, but to who they are 
a soul that Christ has created whom he loves and died for. We could go on socially. Can you submit to somebody who's socially below you? Can you submit yourself to somebody who has a, uh, what you deem a lesser personality? You just don't agree with them, or, or maybe you find them dull or boring or even annoying? Could you submit to them? That's what Christ calls us to do. And humility is so important. Let's go to our last passage. Don't be excited. We're going to be in this one a long time. 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. I began the service by or I, the, the sermon by reading this passage. Likewise, you younger, or in other words, in the same manner, you young people submit yourselves to your elders. Yes. All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride repels God, and it underscores the efforts of being a Christian. Right? Submitting to one another is a display of godliness. To give preference to one another is to align with Christ, to to show pride is to display the actions of being an enemy of Christ. That's what he's saying in this passage. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Grace is, is given to those who display and use it. By the way, this is not unfamiliar. It shouldn't be unfamiliar to us. Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You move on in that passage. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. In other words, if in pride you refuse to humble yourself and you refuse to forgive, what makes you think that you'll get any forgiveness? For God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. If we're going to be honest, no one is worthy of grace. But what makes people think that they can receive it if they truly never give it? God is the great giver of grace. 2 Corinthians 9.8 And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. God enables you to display grace to others. But we have to be willing. And that's what he's emphasizing in this passage. He tells us to submit ourselves to one another. And so we have this appeal. That's what's being given here in this passage, an appeal for willing humility. And notice it's given to the whole church. He says, all of you, everyone. Now he started, likewise, you younger. Well, he was just talking to the elders in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. He's talking to the elders, the pastors, the leaders of the church, and they're commanded to show humility to everyone around them. And then he says to, likewise, you young people, also submit yourself to your elders. But then he says, yes, all of you. In case we're like, that's, I'm not part of that group. I'm not part of that group. Whew, I'm off the hook. He throws in a nice big all for us. All of you. Every one of you. And there's this link 
to share the attitude that's been explained in verse 1 and the attitude of, of the young people in, in the beginning of verse 5. This all-inclusive command. And what's the command? To clothe yourself, to cover yourself, to put on garments, envelop yourself in humility. It's written in actually in the aorist infinitive, which means do it now. Don't delay. This isn't a command that you can get around to one day. This isn't a command that at times you might need. It is a command that you are to do right now. Immediately put on humility. We tend to think of it as, as putting on apparel. And I think rightfully so. Now, let me remind you who's writing this. This is written under inspiration of God, yet I believe that the, the, the Bible, when God uses penmen, He allows them to use their personality as well as they write. And who's writing First Peter? It's Peter. Now why might people, what, what might be in Peter's mind as he writes this verse? Clothe yourself with humility. Think Peter's thinking about that night in the upper room where Jesus takes an apron, a slave's apron, and he ties it around himself, gets a bowl of water, bends down, and washes the disciples' feet. As I recall, Peter and Jesus had quite the interaction. Peter said, no, not me, Lord! And Jesus says, I must do this. And Peter doesn't get it. And he says, not, not my feet, but my whole body then. Peter, just pause and think for a moment. Well, now he's thinking. And he's remembering his Savior. And he's remembering the gentle humility of the Savior. Because now he knows with perfect uh, looking back, he can look back and remember that his Savior was also but a few hours from being arrested, beaten, and taken to the cross. Savior was humbled. In fact, it's the same word. John chapter 13, verse 4. Jesus girded himself with a cloth, with an apron. And so he says here that we're to do this with humility. It literally means low-mindedness. It's an attitude. It's not self-disparaging or self-loathing but a willingness to assume the lowest position of service. I actually preached on this word a few years ago, and so maybe this is a reminder. It's a good reminder for you, and it's a good reminder for me. It, it, this, the word here, humility, it, in the Greek, it's really long. It's tapanaphros une. I don't expect you to, to know that. The reason I tell you that, it's a combination of a couple of Greek words. And what I love about this word is not trying to pronounce it for sure. It's the fact that this is a brand new word. In fact, history teaches us, along with Scripture, this was not used before the Bible was written. It wasn't used, or rather, let me rephrase it, it wasn't used before the church was formed. This wasn't a Greek word that existed. And, and Christ gives this command to the church to love and to display humility to one another. And so the church, the Christians, literally made up a new word. And from this point on, in Greek literature and Greek culture, it appears. The world then 
tries to steal this word from the Christians that the Christians made. It literally means humiliation of mind. To think little of oneself. And so they literally invented the word humility and lived that out in the people around them to the, the, the point that the world starts to pick up on the word, not that they necessarily used it correctly. So they literally invented a word that ran counter to the culture that they lived in. You know what that tells me? They didn't just invent a word. They lived this word. To think that the person in front of you is very important to Christ. To think that that person is more important than you. And of course, within reason, to ask yourself, are you willing to sacrifice your desires, not your needs, but your desires, to serve that person? That's really what he's asking. And yet he gives us this really hard statement that's familiar because it's from the Old Testament. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is the reason we're to, to willingly choose humility because God resists arrogant, prideful people, but He gives grace to those who willingly, mentally self-humble. He says, for, or, or because, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is an Old Testament theological presentation of multiple commands. I think one of the clearest is Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. Surely he scorns the scornful, but he gives grace to the humble. James also uses this in James chapter 4. He recites the same thing. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So likely, it appears in Peter, it appears in James, likely it was a familiar saying among the church, like colloquial Christian speech, that they would say, remind themselves and remind others that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists self-centeredness and self-sufficiency. These attitudes are in direct opposition to God. That's the idea here. God resists or opposes and the word means to be arrayed in battle gear. Now, I can think of a time in Scripture where I think this, this is very similar. As Jacob is going back to meet his brother Esau, he has an encounter at Peniel with uh, the angel of the Lord, who I believe is the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And by the way, the Bible would agree with that too. Um, and so there he is, and he's standing there, and this angel of the Lord stands in front of him, and, and he says, who are you? And, and the Lord is resisting him. And it's this great picture of a turning point in the life of Jacob. Why? Because Jacob is, and his very name means, the deceiver. And after this wrestling match where God resists him, God renames him to a promised nation, Israel. I think it's a turning point in Jacob's life. God resists pride. He opposes arrogance. What a strong statement to the church. The church member who voluntarily chooses the servant's apron finds a gentle Savior. But the believer who refuses to respond in humility 
stands before a Lord arrayed in battle gear. And I don't think this is salvific. It's not salvation related. It's fellowship related. Fellowship with the Lord. And so let me ask the third and last question. How do you gain true humility? If this is the case, if God so exalts, and I know that's kind of a play on words I didn't mean, but exalts humility. He, he, he thinks that humility is so important and pride is so wicked and bad, then how do you and I gain humility? He tells us in, in, in chapter 5, verse 6, therefore, great word for us to recognize, he's giving us information we need, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. First, recognize your position before God. Recognize that honor is valuable only when it comes from something that is honorable. In this case, God. Let God honor you. Recognize that every good thing that you have is is from the Lord, not from you. Not from you. The only reason there is any good in you is because of God. Romans 5.20 says, Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And so let God give you praise. Let it come from the Lord. Don't spread the news of your humility because then you don't have it. Let God reveal it. Let God lift you up. By the way, James would say this on the heels of the, the verse that we quoted earlier. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. There's nothing good in you to lift up. Accept what God does. You know, too often we fight the humbling circumstances that we find ourselves in. We push away difficulties. We attempt to solve problems that God sends into our lives. We save our children from experiencing things that are too hard. We rarely welcome or even accept humbling circumstances as opportunities to reflect and exhibit the grace of God. To demonstrate humility in being a slave. Let me ask you, do you voluntarily accept humiliating circumstances so that, so that you can minister for the cause of Christ, so you can serve Christ? Or do you do what comes so natural to us and fight and try to solve and remedy your problems under your own wisdom? That's difficult. To embrace spiritually difficult situations and rather than ask ourselves or try to think, how can I solve this and get out of this problem as quick as I can, embrace it and use it to serve and minister for Christ. Christ warned us that if we're going to be Christians, We're going to face trials, temptations, hardships, difficulties, persecution, perils. That if we're going to follow Christ, that's what we have to expect. So he tells us, count the cost. Count the cost. Are you willing to carry your cross, to deny yourself and carry the cross? Or do we, as quickly as we can, look for an opportunity to throw that cross off of us and get back to our normal life? Christ calls us to a life of difficulty, and that requires humility. And so next, you must cast your care 
upon God. In other words, admit your fault. Resist internal pride. He just says, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Admit your fault. Admit your your shortcomings. When we try to act perfect, as if we have no problems, no burdens, no trouble, no sin, then we're saying to God that we do not need His help. And we're saying to other Christians that we don't need God's help. We've got everything under control. I've ordered my life. Everything is is just fine. Nothing goes wrong. And you don't need to know of any problems that I've ever had in my life, ever. That's pride. We're saying, essentially, that we can be righteous without God. And Paul readily admitted his failures and his shortcomings. It revealed his humanity. It revealed his need for God. Of course, everyone knew him, too. And so we're to seek God's help. Cast means throw ourselves under the protective care of God's hand. This is a decisive, even an energetic act that that I'm wrong and I need God. I'm struggling and I need God. I failed and I need God. That's what he calls us to do. Again, it's it's written in this aorist principle that it's an immediate thing that you do with vigor. You run to God. You plead for God's help. You cast your care on Him. Our cares, these would be our, our concerns, our misgivings, our pain, our burdens. The, the painful memories that we have from the past that we, we like to, and Satan loves, when we regurgitate them in our mind and we remember our past failures and we remember the shortcomings and the mistakes we made and we, we mull them over and we let them, uh, we let them oppress our own mind. Satan loves that. And yet God says, cast them. Immediately throw them to God. What about our current pressures and circumstances and troubles? What about our future fears? Our unrealistic expectations of how we will behave or how we expect other people to behave towards us? Boy, you want to be disappointed in life? Create all kinds of unrealistic expectations for everyone around you and you'll live a miserable life. Or our anxieties, our fear of what the future holds, because we have no ability to control it. And we allow those, those thoughts to dominate our mind. Christ says, cast them, throw them to Christ. Now listen, do you think that, that your burdens are too much for Christ? you think God is overburdened at time with us? And He said, I just can't take anymore. Let me tell you, I get overburdened. I get overburdened. I get overburdened at the church, okay? I'm going to be honest with you right now. This is why, part of the reason I go to the gym every day. By about 1.30, I've had enough. Whether it be crying children, crying adults, whatever it is, right? I've had enough. My, I'm, my lid is hit, hit and it's bulging and I need to go let off some steam. And I go to the gym and I sit there and I put my earbuds in. If I'm having a really bad day, I don't talk to anyone. And I put my earbuds in and I talk to the Lord. But I get overburdened. As a dad, you ever get overburdened? As a mother, you ever get overburdened? Absolutely. We're constantly reaching our threshold of what we can take 
And for some of us, it might be a, a really small threshold, really short, short fuse, right? Last nerve, that kind of thing. But sometimes it's greater. It doesn't matter. God's threshold, He doesn't have an end. He can never become overburdened. None of your sin is too much for Him. He paid for it all. And by that, that's a good reminder for every one of us because many times I run into Christians who think, or, or non-believers who think, I, my sin is too much for God. Oh, what a pitifully small view of God that is. He can take care of everything. Every burden. He can never become overburdened. In fact, He delights when you cast your burdens to Him. And then lastly, how do you gain humility? Be serious about your walk with Christ. Look at verse 8. Be sober. Or in other words, be serious. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings we are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Be serious about your walk with Christ. You need to work at your walk. You need to work at your walk. Not going to come naturally. Not like when you were in college and you just wish that you could lay your head on the book and all the, 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 the knowledge would just pass through the book to your head. That doesn't happen. Doesn't happen with the Bible either. You have to study. You have to work at your walk with Christ. You have to remind yourself often of your need to come to Him. You need to surround yourself with other people who will remind you to turn to Christ whenever you are overcome. It doesn't happen naturally. But you must put effort into being a victorious Christian. You must be aware as well, aware of the dangers around you and take them seriously. The closer you walk with Christ, the more Satan will hate you, hunt you, and try to kill you. Satan does not care about a bunch of nominal, in, inconsequential Christians who aren't doing anything. You call yourself a Christian? If you're a believer in Christ, you're lost to Him. He doesn't care about you. And the best He can hope for is you do nothing for Christ. And He's fine just leaving you alone doing that. But if you're growing, expect resistance. This is such a great picture. In Africa, one time I took my, my dad and my brother and we went to a, a lion farm. And... Uh, you got to go in with the lions, the little lions, just like three months old. Because you didn't want to go in with the big lions. Okay? And they tell you as you go in, do not turn your back. I mean, they're cute. They're three months old. You know, they're like this big. Yeah, tiny little things, right? And they're really, really sweet, and they still look cute because they still look like little cubs. But the moment, and it happened... There's three of them in there. It's hard to keep track of three little cub lions. And I had, I had Abigail in there with us for a little while. That was a mistake because she's, like, she's just like a little snack. And so, 
So we very quickly moved her out. And as I, I, I saw a lion, and it was looking at her with, you know, she, all he saw was a drumstick. And, and I, so I picked her up, and as I picked her up, I turned, and that the lion jumped on my back. All I did, show my back. Pounced. And it, the, the claws are really sharp, even when they're three months old. And we took, we took Abby out. Don't worry. She, she was safe. Such a great picture here. You give Satan your back, he'll pounce. And so he gives us this command to work on your walk. In fact, there's kind of four, I think you could say four commands of working at sanctification. First is be sober. In other words, be serious. Be self-controlled. It's a call to spiritual consistency. And the call's already been given, by the way. 1 Peter 1, verse 13, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober, or be serious. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4, verse 7, he says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful. It's the same word. Be sober. Be consistent in your thoughts and your actions. The second command that's given is be vigilant. That's to be alert. It's not just act, it's to be actively alert. It doesn't mean just be awake. It means be awake and expecting attack. Expect at any moment that that little lion's going to jump on your back and it's going to hurt. At any moment, expect that. That's what a good soldier does, by the way. A good night's guard doesn't just sit there, you know, staring up at the sky. They're expecting attack. They're looking for attack at any moment. The third is to resist spiritual attack. Resist him, verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood. Resist, it's a defiant act. A firm refusal to budge. Don't turn your back. You believe in what is true, what is right, don't retreat. That's the command. Don't flee. Don't hide. Now we're told to flee sin, yes. But here this is, don't flee from spiritually difficult situations. That's what I think he's trying to get across. If you're entering into this spiritual hardship, something that's uncomfortable for you, a trial, a temptation, a difficulty, and you flee, that lion's going to jump on your back. Don't avoid spiritual hard things. Stand firm in your faith. And that's the last one. Be steadfast. Stand firm. This is a personal confidence in God. Stand firm in what? The affliction. We do not suffer alone. We share in suffering with Christ. We share in suffering with other Christians. This is why we're commanded to submit to one another. We need other Christians. We need to know. I need to know if you have endured the same type of suffering that I'm going through right now so that you can challenge me that God is faithful and, and you experienced the same thing and you found God to be faithful. That's why it's important that we humble ourselves and admit our spiritual weaknesses to each other. 
If you walk around as if you've never failed, you never committed any sin, you never struggled in any way spiritually, how does that help encourage me? How are you investing in me? And vice versa. If I walk around that way as if I've never had a fault, I've never failed in any way, that sets up a needless, empty expectation. Makes you feel inferior. Makes you feel alone. Makes it feel like maybe you've missed something all this time. But if we humble ourselves before the Lord and one another, and we're willing to say, I struggled in that area, and I found God to be faithful. Even I struggled in that area and I failed. God was gracious to me. And here's how. That's what it means to submit to one another in humility. Listen, do you believe that God is in control? That God does not lose control. Are you willing to let others know the burdens that you faced? Are you willing to point others to Christ by sharing your own experience and walking with them in faith? When have you struggled in a spiritually difficult situation and found God faithful? You need to share those things with other people, not hide them. We see this, verse 9. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Listen, know that you're not special. You're not special. I'm not special. You're not special. I can fail. You can fail. I can fall into sin. You can fall into sin. The same temptations that have destroyed other people can destroy you. The Bible is very clear about that. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. What's the next words, though? But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able to bear, but will with the temptation make a way of escape. Can you tell other people about the temptations you've had so that you can also warn them of the escape that God provides. Just like others, you can succeed and resist. Just like other godly men and women who've struggled in the past, you may struggle, but Christ can gain victory. And then lastly, depend on self. I'm sorry, depend not on self, but feed from God. Look at verse 10. But may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Perfect means to bring to maturity. Literally, to completely repair, like a torn garment. To establish means to turn in resolute certainty. Like a ship that's been wandering and they finally get their bearing and they turn to that bearing and they do not deter from that path. That's established. Strengthen means to stand firm in spiritual power and knowledge. Knowledge of who God is. And then settle. Settle you is to lay a foundation. Something that cannot be shaken or broken. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace 
to the humble. I like how the verse begins. But He gives more grace. You need more? He gives it. You need more? He gives it. You still need some more? He gives it. I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand in resistance to God. I don't want to behave like someone He will oppose. I want and I need God's grace and I need His goodness and His mercy in my life so that I can be humble for the honor and the glory of His name alone. Do you long for that spiritual maturity? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your incredible example of kneeling down as a servant, a slave, the lowest in the room. Although You were the highest, You were the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and yet you sat at the feet of wicked, ignorant sinners and you washed their feet. I pray you would help us. Help us to pursue that perfecting, that establishing, that strengthening, that settling in our own life. Lord, help us not to avoid pain or trouble that when we first desire to escape and run, that we would stand firm for your honor and for your glory. And at times when necessary, that we would embrace the suffering that we have in this world so that we can shine more brightly. Lord, that we can humble our mind and display your love to the world around us. Lord, we thank you for the example that you gave us and we ask that the the time that we have right now in honor to you in song would come from humble hearts. That you would help us to display to one another your humility. We pray this.